You're listening to Adam and Eve, your feminist radio show on CJSR 88.5 FM in Edmonton and around the world at CJSR.com. Thanks for tuning in. My name is Marco Visconti. My name is Marie Fontaine, and we will be your hosts for this evening. The theme of today's show is Stepping into Power. We're going to be exploring what it means to recognize that you have power, and then how to harness it for a cause that you are passionate about. First off, we want to wish you a happy Black History Month. If you didn't know, this year Alberta became the fourth province in Canada to officially acknowledge February as Black History Month. There have been events going on all month celebrating the contributions of Black Canadians to Canadian society, so we hope you've been taking them in. If you'd like to find out more, you should check out the National Black Coalition of Canada Society at nbccedmonton.ca. Marco attended an event about early black settlers in Alberta and got some interviews with the speakers. Let's take a listen to that. Um, Back in August, um, I was seeing a lot of stuff about how, uh, well, I was seeing this narrative form that in Alberta and in Canada, we don't have the same level of discrimination and uh, you know struggles as you know black people do in the, in the United States, and I was really surprised by that. So me being a Somali refugee and everything, a newcomer, I dug into Alberta's history, and I was surprised to find out that you know black people have been here for a long, long time. Yeah, my name is Bashir Mohammed. I'm in my last semester at the U of A doing poli sci. Um, I'm the co-chair for policing on Black Lives Matter Edmonton. Uh, in addition, I just also do stuff in the Somali community and all that. You and a lot of the other speakers tonight talked about, we're talking about early black settlers yeah. in Alberta. So why do you think this history isn't taught to us as Albertans? I think it's intentional because at a certain point, like curriculums are political. And I think that's something we should understand. And at a certain point, somebody decided that this group's history was not valuable. And I think now we can understand the value in this like some people came up to me after the presentation and they said I never like I thought it was a small history I thought it was just a few people and now I feel proud as a black Albertan they don't necessarily have to be from the original group that came here but learning like when I was growing up as a new as a new immigrant if I was learning about this history and knew there were people like me way from the beginning or or way you know uh, from the beginning of of uh of any other group that came here, that would make me have a stronger identity. And also, uh, yeah, it would just warm my heart. And I think that's why it's important. Uh, And I think why it wasn't taught was political. But now, I think we can change that. Do you remember the the first time you were kind of exposed to black history, uh, Canadian black history specifically? Yeah, it it was in July. It was in response to a lot of criticism around Uh, Black Lives Matter and people in Canada were saying, oh, we don't have that level of history. Uh, We don't have that level of racism here. It's not as bad here. Um, So I just Googled, like I just Googled briefly and I found an article about John Ware and I went down the rabbit hole and it ended up with me going to provincial archives, digging like the, uh, calling the province, paying for documents, like the KKK document up there. I I paid for that and everything because I was really curious. Uh, So yeah, I was initially surprised. The way I feel is the way a lot of people here feel. Like, yeah, like, uh, like the guy who came up and he said, you know, I never knew it was like this. Now I feel much prouder, you know, I feel empowered. That's how I felt when I first, you know, uh, when I first read into it. So how do you think this history can inform modern discussions of yeah. 
race in Canada. I think it puts it in a context because the one thing I was always surprised about from what happened in August was, oh, I can't believe this happens here, or, you know, oh, it was just a one-off thing. I think we need to understand that this has been a continuous process and it's never been reconciled or addressed. So we should understand that it can happen here because it has happened here. And I think that's kind of the biggest takeaway. And that's the reason why I'm really interested in this. And that's why I'm diving so deeply is so Canadians in general can shift that narrative that we have this history too. And the only way to solve a problem is to understand that there is one. If we keep thinking of these as one off, then I don't think we'll ever move towards any progress you know it's the whole like meanwhile in canada thing like you know like oh america america they're way worse and stuff like canada we have our problems too and i think that's the hardest barrier to break there's always a theme of passivity that tends to be favored here in north america when it comes to anything pertaining to black especially pertaining to African-Americans, you know, we had the, uh, the movie, uh, despite its controversy, the remake of Birth of a Nation that actually highlighted, which was a, a major slave revolt. That was the norm. There was a time when people of African descent, well, Africans, outnumbered uh, anyone else in the South. So it became very ingrained, the repressive tactics. Um, and that easily can take into account every level and every mechanism of society that it had been developed into such time. So then what happened is when they were developing the settler state here in this part of the world, you would not probably be, find it surprising to hear that a lot of those same mechanics begin to enact as they had been so well oiled in the United States. The Klan did not come here by accident. They came here as part and parcel of the established white American culture that was welcomed here with open arms. Did it just stay to itself? Oh, those were those Americans. Because think if there was a diverse group of white people that were here, people from all these European nations, you know, it was a mix. So how did that take hold? Um, it turned out that despite having their different backgrounds and even coming from countries that had been at war and had been in conflict, when it came to the issue of blackness, they spoke the same language. I'm Janetta Jamerson. I'm an oral historian and community advocate. Uh, would you mind talking a little bit more about the racism of place? It's a concept you spoke about briefly this evening. Yeah, the racism of place is a concept that I have come up with to describe the things that take place when people of a dominant culture decide for you what your place in the immediate environment and society is, but they don't stop there. They then put many, many things in place to reinforce it. So that place that they have designated for you becomes that which you must occupy, lest punitive measures soon follow. Do you see that as part of why the history of um, early black settlers isn't taught in our schools? Yes, that's definitely a part of that. I would say 
it has been decided that our place isn't important enough, that the place is reserved for European history, the British, the French, all that kind of other stuff, um, is more preeminent, is more worthy of the propagation of. Whereas that's completely untrue, because if you look at history, if you look at culture from an Afrocentric perspective, you'll find that not only did it not begin in slavery, and certainly hasn't ended in slavery, but we have cultural elements and we have cultural um, and, and historical richness that far exceeds theirs. So to me, at the heart of the racism of place concept is a lie. If we ever want to move away from revisionist history, I think we really have to get over the racism of place. How do you think it affects a person or a community's identity when their history is sort of ignored and left out of the canon? I think it has a very detrimental effect on the people who are the direct descendants of the history that is uh, being omitted. And I've also seen it have a very negative effect on newer people who are related to the history. So in the diaspora, that could be uh, people of African descent from the Caribbean, from uh, South America, from any of the African nations who have come here via the UK, anywhere on the planet, really. They think that they are entering into something new for the first time. And I hear, this, I hear this a lot, you know, they didn't know that they were stepping into something that actually had such a foundation. And the feeling that they were get is, I'm, I'm sinking here, I'm floundering, I feel my legs failing me, until they find out that there is in fact a foundation, a firm foundation, for them to step forward upon. Changes everything. And finally, what has it meant to you to, for this to be the first official Black History Month in Alberta? It's a nice gesture. It's, um, it's symbolic. Uh, within the black community, I'm born and raised here. I grew up performing and participating in black history events since I was a very small child. So for the black community, this month has been official to us for many, many decades. And I don't want to center a system and give it precedence over a culture that has already put in a lot of time and effort and, um, and, and cooperation and work into celebrating a culture in what has absolutely been an official designation. So I look at it, the, the government is joining us in recognizing it. However, they are not making it official in truth for the first time. Number one, yes. There is a history. As soon as this settler state was established, there was a black contribution. There was a very strong, a very proud black presence as well. Just because it's not taught in the schools does not mean that that history doesn't exist and that it is like incredibly real. The second thing I would like you to have as a takeaway is even though we were few in numbers, even though how they banned the immigration, it, was, it just completely worked against us because if you think about it, there has not been one other ethnic group to which there was only one wave of immigration. 
every other group has enjoyed successive waves, which meant cultural reinforcement, which meant new thought, which meant new blood, which meant all the things that you need for a culture to continue on. So we had so many things stacked against us. I sometimes marvel that we have any cultural remnant at all. I attribute that solely to the strength of the African spirit and all that encompasses the belief around that. We are living proof of that. So take that away. Welcome back to Adam and Eve on CJSR. We just finished listening to interviews with Bashir Mohammed and Janetta Jamerson, who are both working to raise awareness of black history in Edmonton and shedding light on the fact that this history is largely ignored by mainstream Canadian society. We'd like to move on to our next story. You might have heard about the racial casting controversy at the Walterdale Theatre. The Walterdale was criticized heavily for casting a white woman in the role of Othello, which is traditionally played by a black man. We at Adam and Eve were disappointed that the Walterdale would try to whitewash Othello, especially in the middle of Black History Month. If the Walterdale wanted to subvert the narrative of the play and to turn the power relations it contains on its head, they should have cast a black woman in the role. Because at the end of the day, gender and race are aspects of identity that we experience simultaneously, and we can't exclude race from anything that we do. It makes sense to draw from the pool of talented female actors when casting a play, but it has to be done responsibly. When Grindstone Theatre and the Malachites decided to put on a production of Henry V last month, they were looking for someone who could embody one of Shakespeare's most powerful figures, and that person happened to be Bryn Lindsay. This production of Henry V is a, is a gender-balanced production. We don't treat the characters any differently uh, to the way that Shakespeare would have treated them so obviously in an original production they would all be played by uh, men and young boys so uh, gender seems to be irrelevant in uh, an original performance of Henry V and so we treat them just as they are. Uh, we pay no extra special attention to whether it's a, a female actor or a male actor in the role. What's important is the role. The chorus of Henry V states quite clearly at the start that it's up to the audience to piece out our imperfections with your thoughts. That's something that theatre can do very clearly, that uh, naturalistic film maybe can't. We can stretch your imagination and offer you uh, something to believe in when you come to a theatre. So how do you think things have changed for women in the arts today, especially in theatre since Shakespeare's time? Well, I'm Bryn Lindsay, and I'm playing Henry in the show. And uh, I think it's... <laughs> enormous um, changes in terms of women's participation in the arts. Um, women weren't really permitted to have any voice, um, particularly in the arts, because it was considered a um, pretty foul thing for a woman to do. But I think we're, we're in an interesting time now where we see women taking, taking the stage in a new way, in a very different way for a particularly Canadian audience. I think there are other audiences that are used to strong female roles uh, in a different sense, but um, here in Canada we're seeing this um, wave of feminine empowerment within the, within the theatre and within the arts in general. 
I think so. <laughs> I'm Byron Martin. I am the artistic director of Grindstone Theater and co-producer on uh, Henry V. And uh, I also play the Constable of France in the production. Gosh, uh, how has it changed? Well, I think, uh, as Bryn said, in terms of we have women in the theater now <laughs> compared to Shakespeare's time would be the biggest difference. Women still have a harder time in the theater than men do. It makes a lot of sense from a producing standpoint to go, well, why does it have to be a man? Let's, we have more women who are available, who are talented, and who can do it. So let's, you know, let's just cross-cast that role. So, it, I don't know, it's a, it's a combination of things, I suppose. And that being said, as, as a male actor, it's still tough. It's, it's still acting. It's still theater. Um, and very difficult to make a living, no matter who you are. I'm... Danielle Rose. I'm one of the co-company directors of Malachite Theatre, which is based in Shoreditch in London. Um, Malachite is co-producing this production of Henry V with Grindstone, and I'm writing the music, and I'm playing in the show, <laughs> so I'm wearing a lot of hats. But just to tack on to what Byron was said, I would love to find a statistician to go out into the world and see how many women there are flooding this job market female actors um, and and how many men and how many parts there are for either one and what the chance is of a woman getting any role male or female I think that'd be fascinating because as Byron said it is it is very difficult as an actor in general to um, just be working to just be doing your job and working at your craft it's a it's a real blessing to uh, especially have projects like this that are pushing boundaries and that not not to push boundaries just for the sake of it but because it's truthful and exciting and it tells the story really well uh, as far as Shakespeare's time yes women couldn't be on stage but uh, Shakespeare's play Othello actually saw the first female on stage um, as Desdemona in the late late 17th century, I believe. Uh, I'd have to have a look at that, but she only did one performance, and then she was heavily fined and jailed for her um, insubordination. <laughs> a little, little bit like Gwyneth Paltrow um, yes. in the film Shakespeare yes, in yes. Love. Yes, very truthful. Actually, just, just after Shakespeare kind of retired, there was a play that was called um, The Roaring Girl, which is... Uh, a, a kind of autobiographical depiction of the life of a woman called Moll Cutpurse, who lived as a man so that she could do whatever she wanted. Um, of course, it was played by a man playing a woman playing a man, which everybody was used to at that time. But, you know, it, it, wasn't, it wasn't like um, at, the, at the turn of the 16th century women in arts was, was a foreign thing. There were still lots of these feminist themes that were being explored by revolutionaries like Shakespeare. You know, you get Amelia's um, monologue at the end, uh, near the end of Othello, um, where she talks about why should men be able to go out and do whatever they do and we should just put up with it. And I, I really hear Shakespeare's voice ring very true in that, in that speech about his thoughts on, on women. It's not doesn't feel far-fetched at all for me, personally, to be playing Henry. Because I, I've never known a woman that doesn't have that kind of fire in her belly. But it seems to be something that we so rarely get to participate in. 
the reality is that, that, that there are many, many qualities in Henry that, that are just intrinsic to human condition, mm-hmm. to, to the human story. And, and it's interesting performing, because in, to my mind, I'm not playing a man. <laughs> I'm, I can't be a man. I wasn't capable of putting the time in to cr- turn myself into a man. I am Bryn Lindsay as a woman performing as Henry V, who is, to me, in my mind, me in that moment. There is, it doesn't matter what walk of life you're from. and It doesn't matter how you've defined yourself. It, it matters that you're telling it then. There is no character. The, the character is a bunch of words on a page. So if you say the words or I say the words, then, then you're the character or I'm the character. Mm-hmm. And I, th- I think that's sort of what Bryn's touching on a little bit there. It's like, like this is this is my version of of, mm-hmm. of these words that are that are on a piece of paper. Mm-hmm. And character, you know? character is a difficult word to use. I think when you're talking about theater, it's something that that we kind of use flippantly without really thinking about what it means. Um, and I know in the room when we're rehearsing, we always try and stress that it's a part or a role. You can zoom out and you can see the bigger picture. You are just a part in the story. You are just an aspect of it. You are um, you know, working with all of these other cogs to tell the story and it really takes the pressure off. Wonderful things about, about Shakespeare and one of the reasons I think that we're still performing him 400 odd years later is because he has written these characters or these parts or these roles um, just like Bryn said, for the universal human being. Everyone can relate to Henry. Everyone can relate to Lady Macbeth. Everyone can relate to Antony and Cleopatra. You can find something of yourself in every one of these characters, no matter who you are or where you come from. So he's performed in every language imaginable, in every setting imaginable. Um, and, and I think that's, that's the true gift of his brilliance and that being passed down to us is it's so simple to take it and make it your own and keep it truthful as well. This story shall the good man teach his son and crisp and crispian shall ne'er go by from this day to the ending of the world but we in it shall be remembered. We few, we happy Few, we band of brothers, for he today that sheds his blood with me shall be my brother. Be he ne'er so vile, this day shall gentle his condition, and gentlemen in England, now abed, shall think themselves accursed they were not here, and hold their manhoods cheap, while Zenny speaks that fought with us upon St. Crispin's day. Preparing for Henry has been probably the most challenging role I've ever prepared for, partially because he's um, got such a huge responsibility, a responsibility that I think the modern generation don't necessarily, we don't really get, particularly in Canada, we don't really understand the concept of a monarchy or a royalty or um, the the authority that comes with that status. and so a lot of my preparation for the role or, or a lot of what came through rehearsals was really trying to wrap my brain around um, being unapologetically powerful um, as, a, as a person um, I am a very apologetic person I, I'm very, very Canadian of me whenever I make a mistake 
Um, I apologize. Whenever anybody else makes a mistake, I apologize because it must have had something to do with me. Um, and it's interesting playing a part like Henry, and I'm still kind of trying to work through this idea that he never has to apologize for anything he does. There's, uh, in his authority, in, in his status, he, people look to him and ask for his forgiveness. Um, he doesn't look to anyone else for theirs. And, and it's, that's been a real challenge for me to wrap my brain around. Don't apologize. Take the space. I see you stand like greyhounds in the slip, straining up on the start. The game's afoot. Follow your spirit. And upon this charge, cry, God for Harry, England and St. John! Bryn's not the only woman who's playing a man's role. We have a woman playing... Westmoreland, who is her second-in-command, his second-in-command. Um, we have a woman who's done all of the fight directing. We have lots of women who are playing typically male parts, and all of them have said, I never imagined that I would have the chance to do this. Or even, you know, in my wildest dreams, it was never something that I even considered. As an actor, you write your lists of who do I want to play and, you know, what kind of goals do I want to set for myself. I'm sure that that um, Sam Jeffrey, who is doing our fight directing and playing Westmoreland, playing Gower, would never have put Westmoreland on, on her list. Um, so it's, it's not really something... Well... No, that's a lie. It is something that I see day in and day out as a woman and as a classical actor myself and as a theatre maker. I want to create more of those choices or, and more of those opportunities wherever and whenever I can without any prejudice and without any bias and without any preset mandates. You know, we, didn't, we never went out and said, we have to cast a woman as Henry V. Bryn just walked in the room and I said, oh, yeah. Your many hats, tell us about those. About, you know, doing the music, acting, mm-hmm. producing. Mm-hmm. Well, Shakespeare had many hats. So I, f- I feel quite privileged to um, be testing myself in all sorts of different ways. Uh, and that's the way that... Uh, Lord Chamberlain's men worked, they all did costumes and music writing, you know Shakespeare wrote music and he wrote plays and he appeared on stage and he was a shareholder in the company of this, you know thing that went to the Globe and to the Rose and all over the country producing producing shows so um, it's difficult, it's very difficult um, but it also keeps me with a pulse constantly on the well, the heart of the work and the soul of the work. Obviously, the things that I love to do um, is be on stage and write music. Uh, the producing side is great because I have the chance to, to be in that position of, of power as far as the any kind of uh, bureaucratic hierarchy of the theatre world goes. If you're producing something, then you can make things happen. You can make those decisions and you can run with them without anyone telling you, no, you can't. Bryn, how do you think it's going to inform the way you act in the future? I think it's... uh, Playing Henry, I don't think, has had a massive impact on how I perceive the world or how I perceive um, the work or not, not, actually, the work has been very affected by this process. I think it's been a very, very interesting and very um, unique experience within the rehearsal process. But I've played lots of men. 
before. I, I've, I've, but it's in terms of like how it's going to affect my work in the future, I, I don't know. I, I can't. I don't think I can make that call yet. You'll find out. I think we'll call you in in half a year. Yeah. <laughs> so, do you feel anything different about yourself as a man? Um, I think one of the benefits of being named as as a male character is that you can be un, un, like I said unapologetically massive you can take up as much space as you want you can be as aggressive as you like you can yell and scream and, and take up space as, as, as you please and I think that that is an alternative that that is uncommon I think that that is something that I see different in my my everyday feminine life and my on stage masculine life is that I get to be quite um, aggressive hmm. and I think that that's usually frowned upon I've experienced myself frowned upon for being aggressive Welcome back to Adam and Eve on CGSR We've reached the end of our show We want to thank Grindstone Theatre and the Malachites for talking to us about their production And we want to thank Bashir Mohammed and Janetta Jamerson for sharing their thoughts on Black History Month in Alberta We have been your hosts, Marie Fontaine and Marco Visconti. Thanks again for tuning in. So long for now.